I'm kind of glad Nick prayed that prayer. Um, it'll be a discussion question about how disconcerted you are, but, you know, today's world can be disconcerting and it can seem like things are out of control. Well, they are out of our control, um, but they aren't out of God's control. Um, and if you think churches are messed up now, just, you know, just read First and Second Corinthians. Churches have always been messed up. And if you think cultures have always been messed up, um, well, just read most of Paul's letters. So God really is in control. And there is some good theological interpretation of what's going on, but we'll, we'll hold that for later. Um, I, I said it last week, I'll say it again, Dr. Truman is interested in, I'll call it a historical sociological analysis. Why, why is the culture now the way that it is, particularly with respect to what he's going to call the sexual revolution. It isn't just him calling that. For each chapter, and we're going to do four chapters in a row, and then we're going to take a break and do a Bible study, but for each chapter, uh, I'm going to give the major premise uh, that I think Dr. Truman is trying to argue. It's not like some philosophy books that are one long argument, but he does have a basic argument and it's that, and this is, this is it, this is really the, the argument of the whole book. We now live in a culture and society in which expressive individualism, whatever that is, and we'll discuss it, has altered the fundamental ways we understand and express ourselves, particularly our sexuality. Um, and even though I, I really do believe that's the major premise of chapter one, if you want to take issue with that, well, make a note, and you can take issue with it when we get to discussion. I'm serious about that. Uh, I didn't write this book, um, and I haven't discussed it with Dr. Truman. So, um, but I think that's it. Um, what he wants to do is going to argue that one important key to understanding the world around us, the world around us, Western culture and American Society in particular, um, come on in, come on down. Um, uh, one important key to understanding the world around us now is seeing how culture has redefined identity and profoundly transformed what we mean when we talk about ourself. Uh, I talked about the scriptural view of identity last week to sort of set up a contrast. Uh, you can't do everything in one book. Uh, and Dr. Truman does not try and develop a biblical view of Christian identity, nor does he have a section on self-discovery. I do have a book about that that I'm going to quote some from, uh, How to Find Yourself. Um, it's a good book, by the way, despite the title. Um, and I think he's correct that the redefinition of identity, which, which has been something gradual throughout history, and he's going to argue how it came to be, and how it influences the culture. Um, if you have any questions, just, just pause. And what we mean by the self. In general, um, he says there is something that helps us to unify the changes we are witnessing. In other words, we, not even just with respect to the expression of sexuality, but with everything. He's going to focus on 
the sexual revolution, but it unifies the changes we see around us. He says this is a common thread that you can see through a lot of what's in culture, particularly some of the disconcerting things. And to make them, if not entirely explicable, at least less random than we might be tempted to think. This is the notion of the self. And again, um, this is what he says. I agree with it after reading this book and his previous book. Uh, But again, if you want to take issue with the author, well, that's part of what a book study is about. So if, if you have questions or concerns about even what Dr. Truman has to say, feel free to bring them up. Um, although I would say while we're going through the review, uh, it'd be good to restrict it to questions of understanding. It's like, I have no idea what you're saying kind of questions. Those feel free to stop. Stop me and I'll go on. So the self, very quickly... When you think of it psychologically, and this is not what Truman says. This is just, this comes under the head of common knowledge, so I don't have to give any citations. Thought of, psychology, thought of psychologically, the self is the individual as the object of his or her own reflective awareness. Uh, there's more to it than that, but we think of ourselves, think, when you think about yourself, who are you thinking about? Well, that's yourself. Thought of theologically, the self is identified with one's soul. Um, I, I use it um, not in the sense of uh, a, a attenuated matter like protoplasm, but it's the essence of who one is, which is non-material. And I talked last week about the fact that human beings are a unity of body and spirit or soul and mind, and that we are meant to be fully who we are as body and mind. We do not live, for example, it was somewhat of a shock when I taught, not this, but uh, biblical anthropology to high school seniors, and they were a little bit confused when I told them, well, when you die, you don't just float around in heaven on a cloud as a spirit. It says it's, it's not an ethereal spirit, there's a resurrection of the dead, and I would usually conclude that with, Read the end of the story, you'll see. So, the enduring essence of who one truly is is the self. Now, materialists, those who believe that matter is the only thing that exists, don't believe in an enduring soul, and many of them don't actually even believe in an enduring self. This is something that, uh, and not all Buddhists, don't quote me on that, but I did study Buddhism in grad school, but Theravada Buddhists who have sometimes been described as atheists, I would just say they're non-theists. They don't waste time describing in detail the God they don't believe in. Okay, that's what Western atheists do. Uh, But they do not believe in an enduring self, materialists and Buddhists. We're simply a series of experiences. Now, those of you who are astute with your logic and philosophy, philosophy will say, well, isn't that kind of a logical contradiction with the idea of expressive individualism expressing your true inner self? And the answer is, yes, it is. And if you are expecting logical arguments from contemporary philosophy in particular and in the background understanding of who we are, well, don't, don't expect it too long. It is a contradiction. <coughs> True materialists should not believe in an enduring self. When you're dead, you're dead. There is no non-material aspect to your being. 
Um, now, this isn't true. I'm just saying that if you're going to be consistent, uh, so self-expressive ex individualism has its origin and background because the originators of it way back when that Dr. Truman is going to talk about were not atheists. Uh, many of them were, well, some of them were, some of them were, were deists, but they were all influenced by the Christian understanding of the world and of humanity. Um, when Truman uses the term self in the book, he says this, I use the term self in this book, I am referring to the deeper notion of where the real me is to be found, how that shapes my view of life, and in what the fulfillment or happiness of that real me consists. Now, kind of pause on that statement because I think, I think if we read that carefully and we understand, well, you know, I, I kind of agree with that. Now, he's not saying this is true, false, or indifferent. He's saying this is the view of self I'm going to deal with to understand how expressive individualism has come to influence the society. Well, beyond influence, it is now part of, it, it is an enduring, ubiquitous, and has been for a while aspect of what's called the social imaginarium. Um, so who's the real me, and what am I going to do about it? And again, if you were a consistent materialist or Buddhist, there would be no real you. There would be no enduring self. It's an inconsistency. Now, uh, Dr. Truman doesn't bring this up later, but I just thought I'd mention it. Uh, got a little montage here to help us sort of understand, maybe from a popular aspect, what expressive individualism means. This is one of the this this is the key term in the whole book. He's going to be unfolding this historically first, psychologically, um, and towards the end, somewhat theologically, so expressive individualism. Of course, it starts with the self, and be yourself is a common understanding, or the more, the more common one, well, you do you. You know, you're you, and you do you, and that's it. Um, or uh, you could go with follow your heart, because, of course, the heart wants what it wants which Woody Allen didn't first say that, but he did notoriously say that when he married his sort of common-law stepdaughter, okay? Uh, adopted his, his then-live-in partner, Mia Farrow's adoptive daughter. Um, and then, of course, follow your dreams, particularly if it's a sloth that is leading you. Uh, these are all... Mottos of self-expression, uh, back in my time, was do your own thing. That's a little dated, but do your own thing. Um, and then, of course, be yourself, express yourself. Um, and whatever that self is that you take to be, go ahead and express yourself. Okay, this is nothing new in popular culture. It goes way, way, way back, all the way to San Frank Sinatra. Yes, he did. And Sammy Davis Jr.
Now, truth be told, I kind of like the Rat Pack. <laughs> we, we have a couple of Sinatra albums. I don't have a, I like Sammy Davis Jr. too. I do not have a Sammy Davis Jr. album, though. Um, don't want to leave the young folks out. Um, so let's talk about um, Elsa. Um, if you have children of a certain age, you have seen this movie, I don't know, what, a hundred times? Uh, one of the best-selling songs of all time is sung by Elsa, a character from the movie Frozen. Oh, this is from the book How to Find Yourself While Looking Inward is Not the Answer uh, by Brian Rosner, who's a Christian. His book, I listed the particulars of that in the previous presentation. It is something of an anthem for Generation Z. I'm not sure who that, I think those are after post-millennials. Or no, millennials. They are the post-millennials. Or maybe they're the post-post-millennials. All I know is I'm a baby boomer, and that went from 45 to 64. Okay. So, it's been, uh, you can tell this book was written a couple of years ago because it's been viewed on YouTube over 1.5 billion times. When I downloaded it, which I'm not going to show an excerpt of it, but when I downloaded it, it was up to 2.5 billion. So, billion, that's with a B. It's, it's, here's an excerpt from the song. And, and again, it's a Disney song, so it has great production values. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Now, and again, truth be told, uh, I think expressive individualism is an aspect of almost of every Disney movie since Aladdin. I always remember the line from that. So Aladdin is singing to Jasmine. Um, a whole new world, a new fantastic point of view. No one to tell us no or where to go. It's every teenager's dream. Um, so as Tim Keller explains, the song's sentiment is a good example of expressive individualism. Identity is not realized, as in traditional societies, by sublimating our individual desires for the good of our family and people. Instead, we become ourselves only by asserting our individual desires against society, by expressing our feelings and fulfilling our dreams, regardless of what anyone says. Now, I have to, I have to tell you, there is another side of that in carefully researching this. I did not watch the movie. That was too much research. I read an article, surprisingly, from the Gospel Coalition, which said... The movie also actually kind of subverts that expressive individualism because while the song itself is her anthem of authenticity and I'm going to do it my way because I got to be me, uh, at the end of the movie she uh, is somehow embraced and embraced by her community. So anyway, I read that. I haven't seen the movie. So. But the song itself is an anthem of expressive individualism and so, again, is just about, there's one in every Disney movie, oh, since I can remember. Um, let's talk about it in more detailed terms. <coughs> so, um, Truman is using the expression from Robert Bella. Robert Bella is a Christian sociologist, or I did research. I can't remember. He's, he's very old. I'm sure he's retired. I can't remember if he passed away. 
but in a book, it's, the book is Habits of the Heart, uh, and it's actually a collection of essays. But in his essay, Robert Bella describes expressive individualism this way, and it's, he's the one who originated the term. Expressive individualism holds that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized, which, you know, sounds like a pretty cut-and-dry definition. So, expressive individualism calls people to live authentically according to one's true self, which is known only by inner feeling and desire. And let me say a little bit more about this. It's not in the notes, but it's in my notes. So expressive individualism influences all of us at this point. This is not like, let's find expressive individualism and stamp it out. That's like saying, let's find every center and, and stamp them out. It's, it's not going to happen. You have to, it's, it's like a disease that we have, although that's going a little too extreme. Not everything about expressive individualism is necessarily bad. But it influences all of us. It permeates our social imaginarium. Hold on to that term because I'll explain that in a few minutes. That's another one of Truman's key terms, which he borrows from another philosopher. And the individual unthinkingly conformed to the ideology of expressive individualism. That's key. You don't really think through what, what this ideology is telling you to do. Uh, feeling and desire can override community standards and tradition, morality, objective truth, and even objective reality. Um, it, this is why transgenderism is the emblem, the paradigm of, of the cutting edge of expressive individualism. You literally, and I mean literally, literally, not figuratively, literally, cannot change a man into a woman, no matter how much you feel. Um, set aside the idea of intersex individuals who may have a genuine biological condition, it's rare, and it's a high percentage, and that's not what transgenders are talking about when they talk about transgender ideology. Uh, a man who has estrogen therapy, who has anatomy to change his appearance, is a man suffering from a mental delusion. He's not a woman. He's a man with a mental illness. The same thing is true for women who want to be men. Even though they think that their feelings can override both objective morality, objective truth, and objective reality. There remains only my dreams, my truth, and my lived experience. This overrides anything else. Now, this is the extreme. Most people you will meet don't follow it that that. There's always radicals in every, every age. Most people don't follow it that far. But again, it permeates everything, particularly but not just popular culture. Um, again, uh, feel free to pause me if you feel a need to have something explained more carefully. And I'll try. And we can always look it up in the book, too, because you all brought your books, right? And you all read chapter one. There'll be a quiz. No, there won't. The sexual revolution, we know this. The sexual revolution is not a new term. It's the cultural upheaval in the Western world focused on sexual, <coughs> sexual codes and boundaries. This began in earnest in the early 1960s. Of course, the aspects of it have been around 
for quite a while, and particularly in, in the, if you know something about the early 20th century and even back into the 18th century, the, the codes were beginning to loosen. But the point of the sexual revolution, and again, I agree, this is Truman's historical analysis, isn't simply to loosen sexual moral codes, but it's the repudiation of the very idea of such codes in their entirety. Um, in other words, it's, it's morality has absolutely nothing to do with sexuality or how you sexually express yourself. Just nothing and, you know, keep your morals off my body kind of thing. Sexual revolutionaries attack the very idea of sexual moral codes as outdated and oppressive. And again, uh, a little more on that. So... Since in expressive individualism, desire and feeling override objective truth and morality, the only desire, the only values left are, are love and tolerance, which kind of mash down into the same thing, and they're reduced to emotion. And they both mean that we must accept almost all sexual behavior as socially and morally equivalent. Uh, if I have time, I have a video excerpts from Blue's Clues that will help explain that... <laughs> Particularly, that particular, uh, Relinda Greger passed that on to me, and it's a really good example of that. But I, I saved it till last because uh, we might run out of time. So don't judge now means do not apply any objective moral standards or practice any moral discernment. I love those hats and those T-shirts that say, only God can judge me. Oh, yes, you're right. And you should be a very afraid. So... Um, <laughs> Also, YOLO. I, I, I actually made up a template for it, but I never actually tried to copyright it. Um, you know, YOLO, you only live once. That was popular, well, when I was teaching high school a little while ago. Um, and it's in Hebrews. I forget the term I wanted to do. Uh, I forget the acronym, but it's you only live once, and after that, there is judgment. Uh, that's... <laughs> so... You do the math, actually do the, do the English and figure out the acronym. wasn't as catchy, though. It never caught on. <laughs> I tried hard to make it. All right, so what is this social imaginary? This is a term from the uh, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor in his book, The Secular Age. Uh, he says, the social imaginary, and he, he calls it that for a reason, I'll get to the reason in a second, uh, is that common understanding which makes possible common practices and a widely shared sense of legitimacy. It's not quite the same thing, but it's sort of allied to the idea of a zeitgeist or a spirit of the age. Uh, and it again, it's not the same thing, but it's also related to worldview. Worldview is your whole understanding or of, or view of what reality is, and most worldviews are shared. We have a Christian, Anglican view of reality, uh, and that's our worldview. Now, there may be certain differences in our individual appropriation of that, but uh, our worldview is stated succinctly in its core, not every little thing, uh, in the Nicene Creed, and we say that every Sunday, so we all share that. It's not quite the same thing. So Truman says this about what 
Taylor said. The previous was a quote from Taylor. Human beings do not typically think about themselves and, they, and the world they inhabit in consistently self-conscious terms. And the reason that is somewhat allied to both uh, spirit of the age and worldview is because they don't, human beings don't think about their worldview or their understanding of what's going on around them in self-conscious terms. We don't try and understand it, analyze it, are we going to appropriate it or are we going to work against it? Do I need to conform to it or should I be transformed from it, as Paul said? So rather, we imagine it in certain ways, physically and indeed morally. Now, this is not necessarily a bad thing. Again, unless you're so absorbed in it that you become unconsciously pulled up into every aspect of the social imaginary. So the social imaginary is a society... This is my summary of what Taylor says and what Truman says. It's society's collective frame of mind slash imagination that forms the thought patterns, sensibilities, and ideas of community and national life. It is the way we mentally and emotionally image our world, materially, morally, and behaviorally. For example, our social imaginary contains the idea of, of democratic processes of democracy. You know, I don't know if we, we, would, we would definitely not find an a absolute monarchy compatible with our way of looking at things. So we assume, yes, I get to vote on who I get to represent me, and I'm going to vote on somebody who, as best I know, represents my values. And we just sort of assume that, um, which is not a bad thing, but we need to not assume it and assume it will always be there. We have to understand where it came from and and what to do about it. Um, but, and, and there are more trivial things like holidays, American holidays. We all assume everybody in the world celebrates holidays the way we do. No, they don't. You know, and Not everybody celebrates Thanksgiving overseas unless they're Americans overseas and then they'll celebrate it. Uh, Halloween and things like that. And we just assume there are certain ways that this is, this is the way our world works. And it is the way our world works. Social imaginariums change with the social situation. <clears throat> and there's even trivia. Keeping your lawn mowed. Why? The grass doesn't care. You know. Right. Okay, well, yes. And, and I've actually wanted to point out to my... They don't really call them an HOA. It's the village council. I'm not kidding. It just... Beachwood Village. They say it's six inches, and I, I want to point out, look, if you measure from the actual ground level, a closely cut lawn already has six-inch blades of grass. So you're saying don't ever let your lawn grow. I haven't said that. I, I mow my lawn regularly. Um, um, my wife pointed this one out. Um, how many of you now recycle? I mean, let me get a show of hands. Let's do, okay, it's something we do. When I was in high school, recycling wasn't even a thing. I don't know if I heard the term um, recycling, but we all do it now, and of course it's a sin if you don't do it. Even though, as, <laughs> as I am want to say, um, you know, there's no recycling plant in Louisville, just so you know. Most of that gets shipped to China and other places where low-paid workers pick through it and get what's... I'm, I'm not... That's what happens. A lot of it ends up in the ocean. A lot of it just ends up in landfill. <clears throat> Ideally, it's a good thing to do. 
but also the green ethos in capitalism. You know, back when I was in high school, capitalism was capitalism. I'm in it for the buck. And now it's no, I'm in it for the planet. We can save the planet and do all this other stuff too. <clears throat> so that's become part of our, our social imaginary. Because, uh, as I'll point out in a minute, this can change over time. But in the first century AD, so we have a democracy, we assume it. No, they had an emperor. And emperor worship was part of the social imaginary. And it was, it was no big deal. You know, it's like, just, you know, say Kyrios Kaisar, burn a pinch of incense to, to the cult, uh, you know, at the temple, and you're fine. You know, it's, it's not like you got to go to a lot of meetings, you know, or anything like that. <laughs> <clears throat> but for a Christian, of course, they couldn't do that because the only Kyrios was Christos. So that was part of their social imaginary, um, also part of their worldview. So many aspects of a given society's social imaginary are universal. Some so ubiquitous we only notice them in their absence. Like everybody drinks coffee and if you don't drink coffee, what, are you even an American? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I drank tea in high school. Um, pizza. Now if you don't like pizza, you aren't an American. Okay. <laughs> A society, and again, these things range from the trivial to the, to the extremely important. And the continuum depends on, it's a moral continuum. The more morality is involved, the sharper becomes the distinction. Um, although there does seem to be a moral divide in pizza, ham and pineapple, you know, there's like, there seems to be a sharp divide on that. Let me see if I... Those of you who like ham and pie mouth get on that side of the room, and those... No, just kidding. I like ham and pineapple. I first had that in Alaska in 1977. So a society may also divided, uh, be divided into subcultures that disagree about is what is normal or accepted. There's the sharpest divide in this country now is over abortion, as far as politics and and uh, uh, social morality is concerned. But there are others. Uh, the more some concept, mindset, or behavior reflects moral concerns, the more potential exists for cultural division about it. And of course, transgenderism is also an issue, as is same-sex marriage. Or have you noticed, though, that same-sex marriage has sort of faded to the background? And before that, homosexual behavior, I mean, I don't think I'm the only one that's known people who identify as gay. I don't like using the term, but it's convenient. Who seem to be perfectly nice people. And I have my personal don't ask, don't tell. If you were to come up and as a gay person ask me, well, do you think God approves of homosexual behavior? Um, and how do you feel about that? I would tell them explicitly. But if they don't, I don't. I might try and share the gospel with them, but, but that's so much part of the background now that we forget that was a big battle that was fought over that. Uh, and same-sex marriage, too. We had a county clerk, I forget the county, and I forget the lady's name, who uh, went to jail because she would not sign marriage certificates for same-sex marriages. I think she eventually won her case, but... <coughs> Excuse me. Um... So the social imaginary changes over time 
sometimes very slowly, sometimes more abruptly. So here we have two pictures of crowds at baseball games. The one on the left is left. Well, it's your left is from the 1920s. There is, I see one woman there right in the middle. Um, <coughs> and on the right, uh, right, on your right is, uh, you know, roughly 2020. So there's roughly 100 years difference. Now, this kind of isn't here or there. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to dress like uh, on the left if, when I go to a baseball game either. I'm probably going to dress like, kind of like I'm dressed now. I don't like shorts myself. What if a bear chases you through brambles? What are you going to do? Um, so I would be more dressed like that. But there was, a, there was an article on this. Uh, I think it was in First Things. Tracing uh, the attitudes toward public dress in, in public events. That, that there was a decreasing distance between how people wanted to present themselves in public and by how they presented themselves in private. Now, the articles didn't rate, make any moral judgments about it, but it was kind of interesting. Um, made me go, hmm, that is interesting. Uh, because most things we don't get dressed up for anymore. Um, weddings sometimes, although even, even some of them. Uh, funerals, although not even some of them. Certainly not baseball games. Uh, oh, and certainly not political rallies. Um, but there's some more. Uh, I actually do have time. I was speaking really fast so as to finish on time, and now I see I'm going to finish early, so I may be able to dismiss class early. So some things may change abruptly. Um, I think, yeah, it is. So uh, Rolinda was nice enough to send me uh, a link to a fascinating YouTube, which uh, displays the idea of a pretty abrupt change of the social imaginarium. So I'll just show this first. This is a Blue's Clues. It's right off the Blue's Clues YouTube channel. Um, what age group is Blue's Clues? Blue's Clues. Okay. Um, I would have guessed that. I don't watch Blue's Clues and... We, we did Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street. This is how we learned to tell time in, in my house. Well, with my daughter, she would ask how long something was going to be. If it was going to be about a half an hour, it was Mr. Rogers. It would be about, you know, Mr. Rogers. And if it was going to be an hour or so, no, two and a half hours. Well, that's two Sesame Streets and a Mr. Rogers. <laughs> but... Um, Things have changed. Okay. I said this to my daughter. She thought it was like uh, satire at first. Nope. And she goes, it's not ending. Oh my gosh. Hang on. <laughs> Here we go. Hey, look at all these families. It's time for a pride bridge. Families marching one by one for
Okay, that, that's enough. Okay. Um, if you're, I, I guess, a preschool kid, it's the colors and the sounds and the lights, and there, there are many ways to discuss the wrongness of this on, on every level. Um, trying to uh, brainwash preschool children into thinking all those things they mentioned are, they're actually perfectly normal, and these are just some of the ways that people love each other. Again, as I pointed out, that now it's all feeling and desire, and this can even overcome a sense of objective truth and objective reality. Um, the one thing I'll mention, unless you had some questions, um, does everybody know what a queer ally is? That's someone who isn't queer, is 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 a like I'm a I'm a cisgender cisgender white male. White male should be obvious. Uh, cisgender means I claim the gender I was born with. You don't have to do that, by the way, because it was just assigned at birth. So a queer ally is someone who agrees with all that and wants to help their queer friends out. When I was in high school, queer was an epithet for homosexuals that was considered rude and offensive. Now I guess it's owned. Um, what? I said, I don't 
Uh, no, it sometimes means uh, people who claim to be um, pansexual, uh, non-binary, things it's like that. It's just any subversion of the cultural norm. Right, there you go. Um, well, gee, aren't we subverting the cultural norm uh, as Christians? <laughs> I'm not going to claim that title, though. Uh, so... Um, so things change abruptly. Now, that is intended for children. Um, if it's not intended for grooming, which Rolinda says, uh, mentioned, it is at least intended to, to brainwash kids into making this part of their social imaginarium because tolerance now means you have to agree that my point of view and the way I express myself is totally acceptable. Now, after that, I'll go ahead and, well, I got five minutes uh, to play with, but I'm not going to play with it. 